Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from the chief customer officer at Client Success. For more than a decade, she's been evangelizing customer success and customer experience because she's a practitioner herself who's applied all the software and tools, all the strategies and tactics, and she can't not help people with the how of customer success leadership and practice. Christy Falterusso, welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I love what you're about. I love the way that you do it. We're going to get into some of those details, some of what you're doing as a non-evangelist evangelist. I don't know if that's fair. I mean, you really are an evangelist. <laughs> I, I do think it is. I don't think I thought of myself as an evangelist until you and I had our initial conversation. Yeah, yeah. You're like, check, check, <laughs> check. Maybe I am. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, with you not really having long considered yourself an evangelist, but really doing it for a decade, as I said in the intro there. What do you think is the most important job or the most important aspect of, of an evangelist? I would say it's education. I think one of the interesting things about customer success that differentiates this discipline from others is like unlike sales and marketing that have been along for around for a long time, where folks really understand its role and its output, customer success doesn't have that same longevity in the space as a discipline. And so for folks to really understand what it is that we do as customer success practitioners, it requires a lot of education. And so I will say that is a big part of what I do in my day to day. And it's not even just educating our practitioners because they need education as well. But how do we get everyone bought into the work that we do and truly understand the value we can bring to an organization? I love it. What this shares in common with so many other evangelists, uh, the way you positioned it against lo much longer standing practices with, you know, I mean, there, there's a guy I know and have interviewed a couple of times uh, who regards himself as a sales historian, and he's calling insights from books that were published 125 years ago, and they're still true today. And so uh, what so many folks are evangelizing in a more formal evangelist role is some form of an innovation, and really, you're evangelizing a new, how old would you say the practices? Customer success, how old would you say, say the practices? Probably about 20 years. Okay. And probably 15 in earnest. Correct. I would say, so I got started in customer success in 2012. And back in 2012, there was there was nobody talking about it. There was no formalization of the processes that we, you know, eventually evolved to follow. And so I was fortunate enough to start my career under a leader who had been a previous McKinsey guy. And so coming from consulting, he took all the best practices to help us figure out how do we actually do our jobs and do them well? But we didn't have resources. We didn't have books. I now can turn around and look at my stand over here, and I have piles of books dedicated to customer success, but they're all written in the past five years. Yeah, so good. What would you say that you're evangelizing? And or just go ahead and riff on what you want more people to know as an evangelist for customer success. 
So I think there's a few things. I think the big one I'm trying to get people to understand is that customer success is not a one-size-fits-all model. In fact, it's not even a one-size-fits-most. It's it's really got to be unique to the organization you're at. And so historically, what I've seen is a lot of customer success leaders just jump into organizations and try to rip and replace what they've done from their previous companies and make it work where they are. And that just doesn't work. There are too many variables within every company from how complex your product is to product market fit or your buyer, right? And so when we don't acknowledge that these variables exist and we try to make the motions the same everywhere, we're going to get it wrong 100% of the time. So a big thing I'm trying to champion with everybody is like, you have to go and learn your business, your company, your customers, your product before you can design customer success. But I feel like there is this pressure on customer success leaders to come into an organization and make material impact day one. And the only way they feel they can do that is by doing exactly what they've done before. Yeah, really good. And before we go too much farther, a lot of folks, I mean, this is a new practice. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with it as a concept. Some people, I mean, I know I work in our customer success organization on a very regular basis, and most of the guests on the show have. But for the courtesy of folks who are not as steeped in it as you or me to a much lesser degree, give a little bit of definition to customer success what is it at a high level and where does it separate from its precursors that are often tucked underneath it, which would be things that are more transactional, I would argue, not that not to minimize their value, but, you know, support and service yep. and some of this stuff. Um, just give that a quick run. Yeah. So listen, in its simplest sense, customer success management teams are effectively there to help drive customer success as an organizational outcome. So what does that mean? We're working with our customers to educate and enable them through change management as they're adopting new technology to help them achieve their goals. That's it. Love it. The change management piece. I love that language. Double down on that. So listen, anytime someone purchases any software, you're doing something different than you've done before. Even if you're replacing old software with new so software, right? It is. There's still change required and change is hard. And it is why change management philosophies and processes have been developed because it is a, an emotional, physical, um, taxing thing that we all have to go through. And so you really do need to be thoughtful about how you're bringing your customers along through a change journey. So we should be focusing. I won't say we are always focusing. Customer success professionals should be focusing on those change management elements because we've got to help our customers, again, do something different than they've been doing before. Yeah, really good. You have me spinning on an idea. At the end of episode two of this podcast with Jen Allen, uh, who was in a sales position, realized that some form of social selling and evangelism was super effective, not just to benefit herself, but to benefit all of her fellow sellers, uh, went off and uh, got into a chief evangelist role. And what you have, and, and so when I asked her, advice for organizations or potential practitioners, she's like, I think this role should go away. I think that every seller should essentially be an evangelist. And you have me spinning on this idea that perhaps every onboarding manager or CSM should have some portion of the evangelist toolkit because so much of this, I'm going to use your words, I think, education and enablement so much of that starts with the light bulb moment. This is where change and transformation starts of like, why do I care? You know, my boss or my boss's boss bought this thing. 
Now my boss is telling me that I need to implement it. Now my boss is putting events on my calendar to go get training with three other or 13 other or 1300 other team members. Like, why do I care? Like there's an evangelist play in this. Does that resonate with you at all? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's interesting is exactly what you described, right? You've got somebody in the organization who's purchasing software and then eventually just kind of walking away, right? It's like almost like dropping a bomb on their team of like, hey, here's this thing. Bye. And what we try to do in how we orchestrate customer success is actually try to help keep that executive along for this journey. Because while we can evangelize the value of the change we're driving, the change happens within. And if they don't have an internal mandate around change where they're managing communication and really getting their people bought in to the value for each of them as individuals, it makes it really challenging. And so the most successful customers that we've seen in all of my roles have always been those where we have an executive who understands that this is change management, right? This isn't we didn't buy software, we didn't buy a product, we bought change and evolution. And the only way to orchestrate this correctly is to follow that formal process, right? And so it's the the getting the buy-in and the communication and all of those steps, and that's required. So where there is absence of that, I tell you, you have a very surface level kind of adoption happening in these businesses. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting and challenging, especially anyone who's selling into an environment where there are like at minimum three layers of selling essentially. One of them is, you know, economic, one of them is practical and functional. The other one is you need to do this every day. Uh, and it's super challenging. Okay, so we were introduced by a uh, a previous guest on the show, Leslie Pagel. She was also a chief customer officer. Um, and so when we connected, I mean, your passion for this was so tangible. I mean, we've only met through this flat mediated <laughs> experience. And it just, your your enthusiasm for this and passion for it just jumps through the screen. Like, why do you care so much about this that you're devoting as much time outside your organization as you are inside your organization? Like, what lit you up about this? What drives you? I mean, you, we were chatting before we hit record and you're spending your nights and mornings and weekends developing uh, material. You've done this in various other ways. And we'll get into some of those tactics because I think they're practical uh, for folks who are in a formal evangelist role, your office hours and things like that. But um, what? when did you get turned on to this in such a way that you're so compelled to be who you are and do what you do? I would say there's probably two drivers. One, I think the first light bulb moment I had is when I realized it works. So before I got to sit in a seat as a leader, I got to be a practitioner. And so I started my customer success journey as a customer success manager. And I got to work with some of the biggest and, and most, I think, amazing brands out there at all different levels in all different industries and verticals. And I got to be their CSM. And I got to see that the work that I did drove so much success for their business, so much so that they actually would coin me their trusted advisor. They would bring me along on their journeys. I would be part of their team. I was effectively an extension of their organization. And so when I was able to see, hey, this really works. Like if we do this well, I get it. I had that moment where I was like, how do we help everyone do it this way to this extent so we can all be as successful personally, but then also driving the same success for the companies and customers that we work with. And so what I did is I looked around and there wasn't anybody helping anybody, right? I talked about my journey starting early in 2012 with not even really a formal customer success structure. I didn't have books. I didn't have resources. There was nobody talking about this on LinkedIn. There were no communities. There were no forums. I didn't have a mentor. 
So when I saw an absence of all of these things, I saw a real opportunity for me to share. Now, at that point, and even now I would challenge, I don't think I'm an expert. I think I'm passionate and loud, but I, you know, there needed to be somebody or some buddies out there helping everybody else, right? And sharing their journeys and sharing their experiences and their failures and their wins. And so I started just going out there and I was really loud and proud about the things that I was doing that worked, but also the things that I did that didn't work. And it drove a following because nobody else was doing it at that time. And so I think the impact I get to have now is sharing those experiences and help educating and enabling folks far beyond what I thought my reach would ever be. Talk a little bit about that reach. I don't know if it's an audience. I don't know if it's a community. I mean, there's obviously a subtle difference there. You probably have a little bit of both. But when you think about the folks that you've gathered around you, how do you personally think about that? You know, it's so interesting because when I started sharing, I never thought of myself as an influencer. I never thought of myself as an expert. I just thought of myself as somebody who would share, right? Like I just was like, hey, I, I need help. Maybe other people need help here. Um, and so when I think about the audience, I will call it more of an audience than a community. When I think about the audience that I've been able to captivate right now, I mean, it's about 40,000 people. If I'm just using LinkedIn, right? Like I'm going to use those numbers, right? I've got 40, about 40,000 people that connect with me directly, whether they're following me or direct connections, where I get to share my content and my insights with them and they get to interact with me. And so it's been really amazing to hear the stories. And I think that is what continues to drive me. Everyone in my in my network who's gotten real value has no problem coming back and sharing their stories of success, whether it's from a training I led or a resource that I produced or a template that I gave them. I've decided that you know the biggest benefit I can have to this community is to keep sharing and what I refer to as selfless sharing. I don't go out there and I'm not charging for these things. Most of the stuff I do is for free. And it really is out there because I'm not trying to benefit from it. I do believe that rising tides lift all boats. And if we can all get better and stronger and think differently and apply these practices as an industry and discipline, we'll, we'll continue to thrive. I so appreciate your approach and philosophy. It was one of the things that was very resonant with me and still is today for our first conversation uh, a couple of months ago. And I have a number of layered questions in here, but I guess I'll start with like a, a kind of a surface one. You know, you could very easily do the $99 course that rolls into the $499 super course that rolls into the $1,999 experience. You already have a market that you could sell it to. Just talk about this uh, selfless, uh, selfless teaching, selfless giving, selfless training, selfless connecting. I would assume the way that you're spending your mornings, nights, and weekends delivering on this course that I get, I, I assume you're probably being compensated, but it's probably not anywhere near what you could get out as, as an hourly rate, either as a direct employee or as a consultant. It's probably not even close. So I, I tuck that into the same category. And so um, at, the, at the risk of asking kind of a surface question, why not the 99 $4.99, $19.99 thing. All right. So my husband will continue to yell at me about this, but I'm not money motivated. I am motivated by people's stories and the penetration that I can have in driving success more broadly beyond beyond my customers, beyond the, the, the folks that I've had the privilege of leading. I want to be able to drive change in our discipline. And I, and I believe that this is the way to do it. Look at the economy that we've all been navigating. How many people are currently not working? How could I ever 
expect to go charge people to learn and to grow when they're sitting there trying to figure out how to pay their mortgage, how to celebrate their kid's birthday, right? These are these are real life situations right now. And if I I don't need it, I don't need somebody's 999. I don't. I don't. I mean, sure. Would would more money change my life a little bit? Sure, maybe. But I'm comfortable and we're fine. I'm not struggling. And so what I'd rather do is be able to celebrate other people's wins and their successes and their personal and professional growth. And so this is, I think, a great way to do it. It's a great way to give back to a a profession that has given me so much in return. I love what I do. I really do. And I want others to love it because they're also able to be successful. I'm so glad I asked. I so appreciate your spirit around it. I'm with you completely. People have asked me like, hey, what's your, you know, what's your end game with this podcast? I'm like, this is it. <laughs> I want to connect with it's people. Maybe why I'm not in sales. Maybe if I had an end game, I would be in a different, different yes. discipline. <laughs> well, but it's it's really interesting though. I mean, I've I've had a number of sales folks on the podcast and I've also done, I mean, I do free consulting around these concepts too, because no one knows where to go for it. And so if you Google it, you find a blog post I wrote years ago, and then now you're going to start finding this podcast and you'll find like some higher domain authorities, like Indeed has a post about the evangelist role, but it's like, it's pretty surface. And so- None of this stuff exists. Like you, I find it really, really interesting and compelling. It's been transformative for me to spend a few years dedicated in a role like this. And I want to talk to other people about it. And and likewise, as you already said about the problem in customer success, it's expression in different markets, in different organizations, and through different people is different. And I want to explore that diversity a little bit to open it up and let other people know like you now, Christy, as a member of this, you know, this show group and, and this ongoing conversation, you don't have to have the title to do the work. Yeah. And I think that's going to give some people permission to do what they feel compelled to do in the way that you just shared. I want to double back. You, you mentioned uh, terms like trusted advisor. I forget how you describe like a true partner in the business, an extension of their team at some level. You talked about sharing failures as well as successes. Speak a little bit, again, at the risk of asking kind of an obvious question, but I'd love to hear it in your terms and the way that you think about it. Obviously, authority and credibility come through these types of things. It comes through practice. It comes through honesty. Um, Talk a little bit about why you're so uh, compelled to speak to the failures just as much and probably honest assessments of software, asking guidance because not every tool is right for the right job or right for the right people. Um, Talk about the importance of um, honesty, openness, vulnerability, I guess, at some level in order to build the authority and credibility where people choose to follow and listen. Yeah, I got to tell you that um, that takes guts to put yourself out there like that. And it wasn't something I was innately cover- comfortable with. Like nobody wants to go out there, especially at that time. It's not like I was sitting in the C-suite. I was a practitioner and I'm thinking like, okay, so I'm going to go broadly socialize all of the things I do on a regular basis that don't work. But the reality of it is, right, and I can't, you know, I can rattle off all the lists of books or podcasts or speakers that I've heard talk about this, but nobody's journey to the top was direct, right? It all comes with these these ups and downs and these, you know, these valleys. And so I started to just wanting to, I started, I guess, wanting to emulate that. If I figured out like, hey, if all these people had to fail to get to where they are, there, there's something here, right? There's some learning and growth and failure. And so as a self-proclaimed perfectionist, these things were very uncomfortable for me to actually acknowledge one that I failed and like live with that, but then to say it out loud. But what I found is that my authenticity and my vulnerability is what was very endearing about me. 
And listen, I don't come with some Ivy League degree and I don't, you know, I, I'm not cultured. I'm not traveled the world outside of like work travel. And, you know, I don't speak five languages. And I, you know, I, I grew up in, in, you know, a suburb out of New York and I've lived here my whole life and I live around the block from my parents. And, you know, I think about who I am, but living that and kind of owning it and just being authentically me is what really got people excited about the brand that I ended up establishing because I was more like them than I wasn't. And it made me more relatable and it made me more human. And in their eyes, it wasn't like the things I accomplished were unattainable to them. Everything felt within reach because somebody that looked like them, that felt like them, that that talked like them, that had a similar education did these things. And I feel like that is the story and the narrative that I want to continue to perpetuate out there is that you don't need all of these other things to feel like you're worthy and that you can go accomplish great things. And so I just started to live in my truth. It just took me, it took me a long time to get there though, to be comfortable. And sometimes I'm still uncomfortable, but I'm, I'm less so now. This is a um, really broad question related directly to what you just shared there. I feel like a lot of that is breaking down this idea that I'm not I can't be who I am. I can't express who I am because it's more formal than this. I need to put on airs or, I, you know, there's so many different terms that we could use to describe like puffery where I need to make myself look and seem more important or bigger or different than I am. I feel like that's breaking down. Do you feel like that's true? I think in some ways, but I still think it exists, right? Uh, and this is where I think imposter syndrome is still real for a lot of folks who are trying to feel like they look a certain way and can fit a certain part to actually play it. And I always like to be very honest, right? Like I didn't have any C-suite experience before I had the opportunity to sit in this seat, right? Like I I worked, I got there, somebody took a, took a chance on me, enabled me and empowered me to sit there and do this work. And I just work hard at it every day. And I, but I still do believe that there are folks that don't believe that they've earned the right to do those things or to have certain titles or to play a certain role in a business. And the reality of it is, if you are willing to do the work, and that's, I think, I think sometimes that the ability to heart, to do the hard work is sometimes more important than the smart work. Um, if you're willing to work hard, I would hire a hard worker over a smart worker almost any day, but do the work and learn and grow. I think you, you all have the same opportunities. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And uh, here's like a slightly different spin. And I'll just share something that I've observed over the years. I'll bet it's a part of your journey as well. And I'd love for you to extend that to someone who was in a position that you were in, say, five, eight, 10 years ago, where you weren't the person that you are today with the confidence and the voice uh, and the willingness to express. And the observation is this. I think a lot of people take one step in a direction. I'm going to share uh, a really interesting experience I had in a public setting, let's just say LinkedIn to keep it there, um, that I had last week and something that I've really been spinning on and I think I learned from it. And they go to do it and they struggle with it. And, you know, I think a lot of folks that hit that little wall or, you know, I teach video email and video messaging and it's a very vulnerable thing for people to do because it's recorded, right? It's not the same as just showing up and going through it live and you can kick yourself afterward, but it already happened and there's no correction. Whereas a recording, you know, and I know you're in the middle of this right now, you can scrutinize every second of every, fr uh, or every frame even. So observation is this, your voice is waiting to be developed. It's not waiting to be discovered. I think there's a misunderstanding that it's around the corner 
and there's just something like I need to watch another video or I need to read another book and all of a sudden, boom, there's my voice. It really is this process that you described of going, finding some courage, making some mistakes and keeping going and that you develop your voice. Has that been your experience and could you turn that into advice for any other people? Absolutely. And you know, it's so funny because I also, I get to, I have the privilege of coaching a lot of folks and many people that will come to me and ask me things like, hey, how do I build my brand? And I, I still don't ever think that I ever built my brand. I think it happened accidentally. But I always just tell them, you just have to start, right? The What I see so many people do is like, especially, well, again, sticking with LinkedIn, they'll start to craft these really thoughtful posts and they they rewrite it and they re-architect it 30 times and then and they don't hit send anyway. They don't They don't post it because they're scared. And that is what I find is that people are scared of what other people are going to think or say or how they're going to respond. And I think at some point you just have to jump. And I promise you, if you jump once, the second jump feels less daunting, less overwhelming, right? And you'll be able to continue to jump until you don't feel anything. You just do. And I think it's that repetition and just that that fortitude of just pushing forward all the time that gets you there. Because I look at my content from when I originally started posting versus now and the value and the depth and its evolution and its voice and its tone and the message, so different, right? The things that I feel safe saying today, I would have never said like 10 years ago, but even the thoughtfulness and the experiences and the level of detail, that comes with time. And I think you just have to start somewhere. So start small, right? You don't need to be posting or sharing or, or getting up. You don't need to speak at every conference. You don't have to be on every podcast. Start with one thing. And if the one thing today is a four-line post on LinkedIn, hit post. It doesn't matter, right? Like, who, who are we worried about impressing? Who are we worried about that's going to judge us? It doesn't matter. Even if bad, rude comments came rolling in, you do not know these people. They do not matter in your world. They should not impact you, your day, how you feel, or how you think about yourself. If you find something worth sharing, go and share it. Because even if one person... One person finds value in the content that you've shared. You've made a difference. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect, Engage, Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelists, let's get back to it. So good. And that's why you don't say no to anything, or at least nope. you-, you know, I should like, say no. I should learn how to say no, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's a discussion perhaps with your husband or that, other that people in your life like, as that's well. like a therapy and my husband conversation for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so good. All right, so let's get practical for the um, for the practicing evangelists. You know, your strategy sessions, your boot camp series, your office hours. Break down a little bit tactically some of the ways that you are creating experiences for people to be educated and enabled along these lines. And maybe speak a little bit too first about how much of it is internally for your own team or perhaps for your customers and how much of it is for this broader group that is in neither of those camps. So what's interesting is, is that I think I always started with the broader community and then worked my way in as opposed to starting internally and working my way out. And the reason why is because I've always wanted to have broader, bigger reach. I, I would love to just sit with my team all day and like teach them all of the tricks and all the things that I've done. 
but they've got to learn by doing and seeing and watching as well. So, and the same thing, you know, with our customers, I'd love to just sit and coach and, and consult with all of them independently, but that'll only help them, right? By taking a, a step outside of our team and outside of our customer base, it enabled me to have this big, broad reach. And honestly, it is, it, that does serve our business well. And so like, let's not pretend that there isn't some real value there. The things I do are some of the biggest pipeline generators for my business today. But I wanted to be educating more broadly, right? So we were able to figure out what are some some mechanisms and some mediums that worked really well with extending that reach. And so we started with this customer success leadership boot camp that I started, I guess, almost three years ago. And the idea stemmed from me observing our customers and the lack of experience that they had around some of the core competencies in customer success leadership. I mean, some of the basics, really, like how do I design a customer journey? How do I interview my first customer success you know, manager? Um, how do I build an advocacy program? How do I launch a community? And so I started to make a long laundry list of all of the things that I think a leader would eventually have to do and developed these, these one-hour boot camp classes that were webinars that were free to attend. Anyone can join. They're recorded. I shared templates and they took off. And once I was able to see how well they did, I realized that there was a real audience for that. There was a real appetite for this type of content that I that I coin as is practical and tactical. What I do is not theoretical. There's not hand wavy things. It's like, no, this is your problem. Here's how I did it. Here's how you can do it. Now go do it. And that's what they needed, right? People struggle with this blank sheet of paper. But if you give them something, if you give them some context and somewhere to start, some prompts, you'd be amazed at what they accomplish. So I've really liked that approach of just starting outside of the business and working my way in. Quite frankly, it worked to satisfy everyone's needs anyway. So there wasn't, there was no one being excluded through that approach. Okay. Was this a, uh, you were just compelled to do it or was there any internal discussion? I mean, I, I would just suggest that it's probably outside the bounds of most chief customer officers roles or VP of customer success or, you know, whatever the title is to be building courses. Now, I don't know that there's anyone better prepared to do it, but we all have, you know, that's a marketing function. You said this is one of the biggest pipeline generators for the organization. So obviously everyone appreciates it, but it's atypical relative to, and what I'm going to go to here is just the operating model, the operating model of a SaaS business or even a service business uh, um, that seems to be an altar of worship for most people, even today, as it's all kind of fallen apart as we record this in mid 2023. I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the assumptions that we've made over the past decade are now kind of up up in the air, and we're looking for like a new. But this is outside the norm. How did this come to be? I mean, it was just something you were compelled to do. I I don't take you as the kind of person that's really seeking permission. You're just doing what you know is right. Because it's right and you know it's right and the people who know you know that what you know is right is probably right. Like, um, speak to that a little bit. I mean, this is not the norm. Yeah, it definitely it definitely isn't, right? Or else every single person who sits in my role, even if I just look at the the software companies that are in my space, they'd all be doing it, right? But to your point, right, and it's almost as if you've known me for years and not months, but yes, I'm, I'm not here to ask permission. I'm going to do these things regardless. If you, as my employer, as the company I work for, if you want to benefit from it, great. We can all we can all win. But I'm going to do the things that I think are right and that 
continue to grow our industry and push this discipline forward. So for me, it's that I am I am here to just do the things. And guess what? I'm big on testing. And so I didn't go and say, we're going to do this thing every month, every week for three years. I said, I'm going to go try this thing. We're going to do it one month, four weeks. If it works, great. We'll figure it out. If it doesn't, cool. I did this thing. And so I'm big on just like, let's just continue to test and try things. But at the end of the day, I think the problem with a lot of companies and a lot of professionals, especially leaders, is we are so restricted to our swim lanes. And I feel like that hurts us. It doesn't help us. And so if every single person in your organization operated as an evangelist, how would your business look tomorrow? Probably very different, right? But the problem is, is that we have these hats that we wear that we think define the work that we are supposed to do. And when we stay there, we, we have the same results that we have. When we break free from those roles, we drive change. And that's what I'm more interested in doing. And I will only work for companies that will support that mindset. Otherwise, we're not going to be friends. I can't, I can't succeed there. <laughs> totally fair. And I think the value is obvious to people who like as soon as you get a glimpse of it, you're like, this this obviously makes sense. And I appreciated what you just shared. There's like um more employees as evangelists. What I want to do here is double back into your um as you're describing some of the elements of the boot camp, advocacy programs and community. Uh a few episodes back, uh I, I shared a conversation that I had with Leslie Greenwood, who is uh helping people build communities. And her philosophy is anybody can be an evangelist. And that's kind of what I just heard you say. And that's kind of the mm -hmm. spirit of you as the operator, practitioner, leader evangelist. Um, and she's primarily focused on customers. And so I'd love for you to share just to kind of you know, like either plus up or – and you haven't heard it because it hasn't released as we record this. But like um, I want you to plus up or, or share some additional color on the idea. How do we find – our potential advocates or our potential customer evangelists? What are yeah, a few so practical tips to find them in a pool of, say, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of customers? I mean, honestly, I think that the, the greatest gateway there besides data, and we can talk about data that we can use to observe behaviors, but I think it's your customer success teams or whomever that frontline team is that is engaging with your customers. One of the things that we ask our customers when we when they come into the partnership is, for each individual that we're working with, how are you personally motivated? What are your career ambitions? And for a lot of a lot of times, we hear folks that I like. I want to have a bigger voice. I want to make a bigger impact. I want to be able to share my stories and my learnings. When we hear that, we want to partner with those customers. We want to be the platform to amplify their voices. We want to help them build their brands. And so, I love the idea of using your CSMs to do that because the minute your CSM can actually be a part of that person's professional journey we win, right? Relationship development just organically happens. So I think that there is ancillary benefit to having those frontline teams help to foster and build that group of evangelists. But then I think there's also data, right? And so what we often do is we look at how do our customers behave? And we use data to analyze that. Our customers who are the most engaged in all aspects of the partnership, right? The ones that are participating in community, the ones that attend the webinars, the ones that show up to their meetings thoughtfully, the ones that challenge us the most, the ones that are most interested in our product and innovation, the ones who want to participate in your customer advisory boards to be part of that vision and thought leadership and are committed to their industries. We use those data points to help influence where do we start? Where do we build that pool? And, you know, once we do, we're also not trying to force them into specific, I would say, programs, right? So just because somebody looks a certain way or behaves a certain way or they have certain career ambitions 
they might not be a fit to be a certain level of evangelist, but there are unique ways that you can leverage every voice. And so I think it's important that we try to figure out what is the right mechanism or what is the right program to help everybody have their reach. And so same thing with me, right? Like I want to, I want to be visible because I have no problem with that. That's also in my comfort zone now. And I've got a lot to say and I want to say it. Other people don't operate like that. I have a lot of folks who have the same goals, but we'll go about it differently. So also let's tailor things so that we can leverage folks through different medians and in different ways to help them accomplish their goals, but in ways that benefit both people in the right way. Yeah, really good. We, um, customer advisory boards, you just mentioned that. So we haven't, some we talked about with Arthur Castillo, I think that was episode 17, um, any tips on customer advisory boards, uh, either to get them started or ways perhaps to segment them across uh, some diverse customer base? Um, how do you? How have you thought about and experienced and uh, perhaps initiated or led or inspired other people to lead customer advisory boards over the years? Oh my goodness! Well, can I just start with? Don't just think you're going to do a customer advisory board and then like pretend to do a customer advisory board. The best customer advisory boards I've been a part of. As a, as a customer, but then also um, as a leader in certain organizations, they are well thought out. These are strategic initiatives that are, are likely touching your biggest, most strategic customers and have the most impact to your business if done right. They can also have the most impact on your business if done wrong. So you just, I, I just want to put that out there is that these are not some willy-nilly thing that you just decide that we're creating a group of people and like set it and forget it. Um, I will say the customer advisory board programs are something I'm very passionate about, and I, I would love to be able to do them every role that I'm in. It doesn't always work that way because of staffing and resourcing and prioritization. So you have to be able to prioritize this larger initiative. But when you think about who you're bringing into it, we do like to have diverse voices. I don't just do this to amplify the voices of our most strategic customers that use our product one specific way. We try to expand the reach, but it's really not about the companies that they represent. It's about the people that they are, the individuals themselves, and the visions that they have for the industry or the discipline that they're in. Um, it's very easy to target your biggest customers because you want this to be somewhat mutually beneficial. But at the end of the day, the real value of these is to help propel your company and your industry forward, and you need the right people to be a part of that. So for example, I, I work at a small company right now. If somebody was to isolate only their largest customers, and I didn't I didn't get to sit in a seat as a chief customer officer at Oracle, um, I might be excluded. But I would say, I would challenge that I think I have a, a great voice and vision for the industry and discipline that I sit in. So don't use data to isolate your customers and the voices that might be the most impactful. Find a different way to figure out who are the right people to be part of it based on the objectives that you have. Really good, and I think the uh, the diversity of voices is uh, makes the whole thing more helpful because the goal is to, as you amplify, and I'm going to turn this into a tactical question for you, um, as we amplify these voices, as you already said about yourself, different people will see themselves in your story, in your situation, connect and resonate differently. Some people are going to say, gosh, I really want to hear what the chief customer officer at Oracle, if there is such a person, has to say. But I also want to hear it from other seats as well yep. because I might be able to learn something different from someone who's in a completely different situation 
but I can also connect and relate and have a more direct connection and a more immediate learning and practical application from someone who looks and feels a bit more uh, in a similar situation to me. So, so, so my question is, you've mentioned a few times amplifying voices, sharing the stories, um, certainly a customer advisory board, you're amplifying them among a community of peers in some cases, but what are some of the other channels? How do you let these voices out? I mean, what I naturally go to, uh, you know, hammer to the nail is a podcast, for example, you know, I want my CSMs to give me great podcast guests that have something to say that reinforces our point of view, but then also allows them to express their own. But what are some of the other channels? Like, how are you amplifying voices? Is it internally? Is it externally? Is it all of the above? I think there's a few ways. So obviously, yes, I also love podcasts. Um, but I would say one of the the channels that we have the most success with is just our webinars. We love to invite our customers to come and tell their story. And what we try to do is make it platform agnostic. We don't want it to be about our software. And I see that that's where a lot of companies get it wrong is that they are looking for people to be the champions of their product and their brand. And I think that that's a, a that's there's probably value there. It's different than what I would do. And so what I'm more interested in folks that have a really compelling idea or a vision or they've done something really impressive, something different and allow them that platform. So webinars seem to do really well. We've done co-branded articles where we have obviously our logo on it. It goes on our blog. So it has a broader distribution channel than they might personally have. So being able to let them put their ideas to paper. Not everyone wants to be on a webinar or a podcast. So let them write their ideas and thoughts and then publish that and distribute it, whether it be in our newsletters or on our blog or whatever. Um, we've seen great success with having people speak at our events. And so if you if you have a customer event or if you have an industry event, find the right voices and allow them speaking opportunities. For some folks, that is their goal, is to to have one opportunity to do that, to get in front of a big audience and tell their story so give them that chance. Allow that that to be their opportunity. Um, other things we've done, social media content, right? Again, co-branded, allow them to post their story on our on our social media platforms. So I think that there's a million ways you could probably be really creative with it. And I think that's the thing is like, no, no bounds. If your customer has something that's worth sharing, we've done like asynchronous stuff where people, I'm like, go record your own YouTube. Like, go make a video. I don't care if you use Loom or Zoom or whatever. Make a video and we'll chop it up and just put their sound bites out for them. They love that. And so we'll do that on multiple channels. And it's not just social media, right? We'll we'll stick that little excerpt in our in our blog and we'll transcribe it and use that content other places. So just don't don't be limited by the mediums that we think work really well. In fact, be more concerned with what is the content and what is what is it what they're sharing and what is the best way to distribute that. Yeah, really good. And you just gave like five specific practical things. So if you are a person who knows bounds, uh, you could start inside Christie's Bounds and you're going to be in a great place. Um, okay. You shared something that has been, that, that's in the original, my original learning about the evangelist role in particular there. And it's, you know, you're evangelizing more the problem than you are the product. And you even mentioned that about your webinars. And mm -hmm. I just want you to speak for a moment to a founder or a leader or an executive who doesn't quite have this vision of evangelism, the idea of evangelizing people, evangelizing stories, evangelizing problems and opportunities, evangelizing 
uh, perspectives and points of view rather than the product itself. I think a lot of people struggle, again, from like a model perspective and attribution, like if I put in X amount of time or X amount of money or X number of people, I'm going to get this result. And that's not a straight line in general, this idea that I'm going to share content, I'm going to produce a webinar, I'm going to invite people, I'm going to leverage our, our database, our customer list, our email list and invite people into this conversation. And we're not just going to be saying client success, client success, client success, client success. Like that's a leap of faith for a lot of people. Um, how would you encourage people to open their minds uh, beyond um, the, the obvious hard sell and or hard product orientation? Because your customers don't buy products, they buy, they buy solutions. So if you don't know that, and if you haven't realized that, that might be a tough transition right? Because you're not, we're not selling products. We're not selling functionality. I'm not selling a feature set. I'm selling a solution to a specific problem that our unique customers have. And while our product can solve the same solution for a multitude of customers, the reality of it is your customers need different things at different times. And so I stopped focusing on the product and focus on the solutions. And as such, guess what? Today, this might not be a problem for you, but when it does become a problem for you, you're going to come and reach out to me. And that is the value of the content that I've been producing. I don't care if you're using our product today. I'm happy if you are, and I hope that you're getting value. But the real thing for me is that you're solving problems in your businesses every day. And I always say, listen, you know what? Excel is literally the most powerful tool in the universe. So you can do anything with Excel. Go use that if you're using nothing. But I give them a gateway that when they're ready, when the problem is big enough, to come and, and our door is open. And so I make sure that they understand a, a pathway to that. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. It's really focused on like, you have something in front of you. Here's four ways that you can go solve that problem today. I might be a part of one of those solutions. So well said and said as an evangelist. And a fun fact, I'm actually delivering an internal presentation today uh, where solutions, not software, uh, is one of the key lines. And I also, it's a bullet point on one of the slides. Nobody wants video email software. No one wants video messaging software. They want what, obviously, what that delivers. Uh, and I think, you know, your your philosophy around it is right on. And it's sad to say that it's like modern or progressive in some way. I know, it feels like it shouldn't be, but I think it still is. Yeah, absolutely it is. This has been an absolute joy. I so appreciate your passion and enthusiasm. I appreciate your generous approach. I I identify with so much of your perspective. You're much more prolific in content creation than I am. Um, but but and so it's been really inspiring for me as well. But this like the one thing that, among a variety of other things, one thing you absolutely share with everyone who's been a guest on this podcast is you can't not do it. You're just compelled, period. And I think the, you know, more motivated by helping, inspiring, changing, leading than compensation. I mean, it needs to be there, but it, it that's not the primary driver. I think a lot of folks share that. So um, this has been an absolute joy, Christy. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the same fun question that I ask everybody, which is what is something that you find yourself evangelizing in your own personal life and or what is something that someone close to you has accused you of evangelizing? Okay, so I'll give a brief story because I know we're getting ready to wrap up. Um, a year ago, I decided to go alcohol-free as just a, a growth journey and just wanted to see how I would benefit as a result of it. And uh, over, 
over a year now. I've only had three drinks. Um, and so those three were to celebrate big, big family milestones, but literally three drinks. And here I am now six months straight of going alcohol free. And the benefits to this are so far beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And so I find myself preaching probably way too much um, about the benefits of going alcohol free. And you don't need a problem. You don't have to have a problem to quit drinking, um, but you have to understand the benefits to it. So I will say that is the big thing that I'm out there just championing right now for anybody that I know, family, friends, anybody in my network, because I've just seen so much personal and physical growth as a result of kicking poison. So wonderful. And uh, it's something I've toyed with intermittently over the past several years. I don't know that I've had as few as three drinks in one year. In fact, I know that I haven't uh, in the in the past several years. But um, what has been your approach? H has it been so? So I've toyed with um, some of the and I like I, I like beer. And I hate to say that because it sounds like Brett Kavanaugh, which is nuts. <laughs> I like beer. Anyway, I that that is like I don't I don't. Mixed drinks, wine, not yeah. really interested. I, I enjoy beer. There's so many varieties of expression. It's like it's, it's a whole subculture. And it's easy to get drawn into a subculture. And so my, and so I've, I've tried some of the non-alcoholic beers. I don't really like a lot of them. Some of the zero calorie but hopped up kind of sparkling drinks. I don't really like. Are you a substitute person or are you a um, – I'm just, it's just not of interest to me anymore. And the farther I go, the less interesting it gets. Are you a substitute? Like, cause there so, are now non-alcoholic spirits. There are non-alcoholic yeah, wines, so all that. Like, stuff. Yeah. It's so it's actually so cool to see um, how many options are out there. So originally I was a substitute person and it was more because of the social aspect of it. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was doing it for me to make myself more comfortable or for the people around me to make them more comfortable. And so I will say the first couple months, there was a lot of that, like, non-alcoholic wines and spirits and cocktails and all of these things and trying to find these alternatives. But at the end of the day, you know what I was doing? I was consuming unnecessary calories. And I'm also somebody who's very big into fitness and health. And I was like, why am I drinking all these calories to make people around me more comfortable? That doesn't make any kind of sense because that's not part of my, that's not part of my goals. So eventually, I think after a couple months and just me talking more openly about why I went alcohol-free People around me just started to accept that and it became less of a thing. And so I didn't need to rely on that as a crutch for myself or the folks around me. Now, when I go out, I talk about Diet Coke as being my like my treat. So when I go out, if my friends want to be at a bar or we're at a party, I mean, I might have three or four Diet Cokes. And like that is to me like going wild. Um, and you know what? I don't wake up feeling tired or lethargic. I am more focused. I have I'm able to commit to my habits and the things that are important to me with no disruption. And so, yeah, originally I was an alternative person. I will say I also like beer. And so beer more than wine. And I'm shocked. I am personally shocked that I, I would say that out loud, that I miss beer more than wine. But I, because I guess I was not a beer connoisseur, I do I do appreciate the non-alcoholic beers. And I, I will have a couple of those in the summer. Awesome. So much good stuff there. I'm glad you shared that with all of us. And I know that it's going to connect with a lot of people. That's one of the First of all, it's just a fun question yeah. and you never know where it's going to go. And I've heard all kinds of things, <laughs> uh, but this one was super practical and I enjoyed it very much. I appreciate you continued success to you. I don't need to encourage you on your mission because you are well on your way and charging hard every day. I appreciate it. And um, uh, I know other folks will enjoy it too. Thank you so much for having me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. 
Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.